You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. My name is Natalie, and I will be your host today. We are so excited to welcome Nima Avashia to discuss their new book, Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place. And they will be in conversation with Sejil Shah. I'm going to introduce you to them in just a minute, and then we will get started. Nima Avashia was born and raised in South, Southern West Virginia to parents who immigrated to the United States from India. She has been a middle school teacher in the Boston Public Schools since 2003. Her essays have appeared in The Bitter Southerner, Cat, Catapult, Kenyan Review Online, and elsewhere. Sejil Shah's writing crosses genres and disciplines. She is the author of the debut essay collection, This Is One Way to Dance, named an NPR Best Book of 2020 and a finalist for the 2021 CLMP Firecracker Award in Nonfiction. She writes about the challenges of neurodiversity and living with a mood disorder, particularly as a woman of color and as an Asian American. Sejil recently completed a hybrid story collection, How to Make Your Mother Cry. That is a phenomenal title. <laughs> uh, thank you both so much for being here. We are so excited to hear your chat and to get some more info on this wonderful book. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Uh, Nima, did you want to start by reading a little something for us? Yeah, definitely. I'm going to read just a little excerpt from an essay in my collection. Um, it's called A Hindu Hillbilly Elegy, and I'm just going to read you the first two sections of it. A Hindu Hillbilly Elegy. One, when I hear the first strains of Om Jai Jagadish Hare, I am instantly five years old again and racing around the exterior of the South Charleston Junior Women's Club with my friends. We throw salted peanuts into cups of Coke and scream with joy at the ensuing eruptions of brown foam, only stopping when ordered into the building by our parents for the final stages of puja, the arti, the moment when light is offered to the deities. Out of breath and sticky-handed, we push our way to the front of the room, where photos of idols cluster on a small table weighed down by offerings of fruit and sweets. Aunties in silken saris hold a flat silver tally decorated with designs made in rice and vermilion powder, upon which small cotton balls dipped in ghee have been lit. One by one, we approach them and take hold of one side of the tali, keeping our eyes on the flames and the idols as we move the tali through the air, first left, then right, then counterclockwise. As each of us finishes, we pass one hand over the flame, then over our heads, a motion ingrained in our muscle memory. Around us, elders clap their hands and sing the arti, full-throated. We are a motley crew, this band of Hindus, gathering once a month to pray in Southern West Virginia in the mid-1980s. Our families immigrated to the United States from all over India, sometimes by way of Kenya, Tanzania, or Uganda. Work as engineers or physicians has brought us to this tiny state whose W our parents confuse with V because we don't have a W sound in our home languages. In their mouths, West Virginia often becomes West Virginia. We live in a valley nestled by a river whose name we also struggle to pronounce, Kanawa, another W to deal with, in topography wholly unfamiliar to us. 
The leaves changing color each fall and then drifting to the ground in crunchy piles is a phenomenon that will perpetually fill us with amazement. Our immigration to almost heaven, West Virginia began in the late 60s. By 1990, Asians made up 0.4% of the state's 1.7 million person population. Cut that number in half, eliminating the Filipino, Chinese, and Korean communities, and you have the number of South Asians in the state. Cut that number down to Indians of the Hindu faith, and you have less than 2,000 people statewide. A single Christian megachurch in my hometown had as many members in its congregation as our entire faith did in the whole state. Hinduism, in its non-polemicized form, is a loose amalgam of texts, mythologies, philosophies, and rituals. It isn't held together by a pope or a network of clergy. Our priests act as conductors of ritual, not spiritual advisors. In truth, our religion is relatively self-directed and individualized, which is fine when you live in a country where many of the other one billion inhabitants also practice their faith that way, where there's a temple on every corner and your religion's holy days are state-sanctioned holidays. Adherence to the faith proved more difficult for me, often the only Hindu in a crowd of Christian classmates. I know this is not just a NEMA problem. Nearly every week, I see an article proclaiming the erosion of faith in America. But that erosion, in my case, was both enacted upon me and by me. Two, I heard that people like you worship cows. I was in elementary school the first time someone hurled that phrase at me much the same way a bloody cow's head had been hurled at the door of our makeshift temple in the basement of a house once in the late 70s. How does a child explain faith to another child? We don't worship cows, we just think they're sacred. Worship, sacred. To a Christian kid in West Virginia with limited vocabulary, what was the difference? My polytheistic faith was incomprehensible. The blue gods, the ones with elephant heads, the ones whose stories my mother recounted and I hungrily devoured, were mocked by my classmates in the world outside our home. Why don't you eat meat, they would ask, eyeing my fluorescent yellow lemon rice stained by turmeric and packed in a biohazard Ziploc bag my thrifty father had taken from the chemical plant. The orange skull and crossbones on the front did nothing to ease my outsider status. Hindus don't believe in violence. Killing animals is a form of violence, so we don't eat meat. I gave them the same answers my parents had given me when I asked at our dinner table, but the answers I accepted unquestioningly didn't suffice. What if plants have feelings? What if that carrot is actually screaming when you cut into it? Aren't you committing violence then? Again, I failed to know how to explain. So much of culture and faith had been automated for me, much as they had been for my Christian peers, that I couldn't provide reasoned responses to their questions. It never occurred to me to turn the microscope on them, on their faith, on their culture, such as the curse of being the minority during childhood, I suppose and never feels quite safe to challenge dominance in that way. Instead, their shaming questions prick tiny holes in my nascent faith, tapping any reserves built up at home and at Puja. Thanks. Thank you, Nima, that was beautiful. I was hoping you would continue. <laughs> um, I have so many questions for you, really, but I was, this is one of the essays, a Hindu hillbilly elegy that I was so moved by in part because it gave words to so much of my experience that I had never seen before. Even, even just Om Jai Jagadish, which we, set, which we sang every night of my childhood and I, it never occurred to me to write about it. And 
And to explain ARTHI, um, emotion ingrained in our muscle memory, uh, that was just beautiful. And this tiny state whose W our parents confuse with V, West Virginia often becomes West Virginia. <laughs> um, so many things in that essay, but I thought I would start with um, your, your book cover. Um, which, and, and I'll, I have a bunch of um, post-its sticking out of it now. Um, two writers we know in common, Gita Kotari and Rahul Mehta, had both told me about you and your writing and to look out for it before I read it. So I knew that you were out there, but when I saw your book cover, I just, I thought, I need to get this book right away, immediately. And it was, I, I feel like book covers have, um, they tell a story. and so. It was your title, it was the photo, it was the subtitle, and it was the font. And I know we're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but you know, I think in this country you are um, judged by how you look, maybe in any country. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your very appealing um, cover. For sure. And, and just for any folks who haven't seen it. Um, yes, sorry, I didn't do a no, visual description, thank you. It's all good. It is a picture of um, several Indian folks, some older and some younger, all gathered um, in front of an old grist mill. And it's the fall and you have the colors of West Virginia fall kind of in the background. And it's the 80s, so people are dressed kind of in 80s clothing and it's a range of children and adults who are in the picture. Um, and this is actually my mom and my sister and me, and then also sort of my, um, my adopted family, which were all these other Indian uncles and aunties and kids who were not blood related to us, but because we were this very small group um, in West Virginia, we really became like family to each other. Um, and it was really interesting because when it came to the cover, my publisher, West Virginia University Press, had asked me to do like a survey with a bunch of questions about like, what colors do you think about when you think about this book? What images come to your mind? Um, and I'd given them all kinds of ideas. And then they'd said, well, can you share some pictures with us that might evoke this time in your life for you? And that this picture for me is like the best picture to evoke my childhood because it juxtaposes two things that I think the majority of people in this country would never put together, which are Indian people in like the context of rural West Virginia. Like it's just stated really clearly in the image. I didn't think they were gonna use the image as the cover. I thought they were just gonna use the image as inspiration. Um, but my, my editor, Derek Kristoff had this interesting reaction where he said that he felt like with the more abstract cover designs, it was obscuring what the story was about. And that he felt like if we're gonna call the book another Appalachia, we should put another Appalachia on the cover. Like we should just lead with the fact that this is a book about race in Appalachia and not have that be something that you have to open the book to find out. But that when you pick up the book, you know from the outset that what's gonna be talked about in this book are questions of race and identity and immigration um, in a rural place. And so I felt really excited about that and also nervous because then it meant I had to like call all of the aunties and uncles and be like, so, you're going to be on the cover of a book. How do you feel about this? And at that point, it was almost like it was too late. Like the ship had sailed. The cover was going to happen. What did they say? Amazing. I mean, they were like, we never thought in our life that anyone would want to put us on the cover of a book. 
it was beautiful. Like I was so nervous. I made those phone calls and like, I felt like literally there was like this giant rock in my throat of like, oh my God, what if they say no? What if they're angry at me? And every single person was just so gracious and mainly so I think moved that this story that we all have assumed was just like our weird small story was now going to be seen by the world. I think they felt seen in a way that was kind of beautiful. Uh, so I, I love the cover. Like every time I look at it, I sort of, sort of feel this, that like it centers the people who, who I want to be centered in this story. And it just, it puts them right at the front um, in a way that I think is really beautiful. Yeah, I love it. I think for those very reasons. And I would, I would love to hear a little bit about the title and the subtitle, how you came up with those and, and was it difficult? Was it something that your, your press had something to do with or was it something that you knew about when you were writing the essays? So I actually thought the title of this essay collection was gonna be a Hindu hillbilly elegy, which is the title of the essay. I just read a little excerpt of to you. Um, that was a title I submitted with, um, but I think, and I think they were right, uh, the folks at the press and on the board were a little bit concerned that that title ties my book to another book with a similar title in a way that wasn't necessarily going to be beneficial, like in a way that like, while there is like a clapback in this book, an implicit clapback, they were like, we don't think you need to make it that explicit in the title, like we want your title to stand alone. And and they were like, your book, yes, is a clapback, but it's a lot more than that. And if you, if you use that title, you're going to reduce it. You're going to make it so that's all it is, is a conversation with that book, as opposed to being a conversation with a whole other set of Appalachian literature by a lot of other people who you actually respect and like and, um, and are engaged with. So like, let's not go that way with the title. Uh, and so then I was stuck for a while because um, this title that I'd had in my head for three, four years um, was gone. And I asked my, my friends who I grew up with in, uh, in West Virginia, my Desi friends, I asked them to do like some brainstorming with me, which proved to be ridiculous and hilarious, but not oh, super what some, Wait, what are some of the, the other titles that you didn't use? Oh, the alternate titles? <laughs> um, Mountaineers are always ghee. <laughs> Pepperoni dolls. Um, West by God's Virginia. It just like it devolved really quickly. Uh, and and so then it, it, that didn't help basically. I was like, I love you all and you have not helped at all. And this is hilarious, but not helpful. Um, and so then I just started to go back and forth with Derek, my editor, uh, trying to do like word associations that would like get us to the idea that we we're trying to get to. Um, and I actually ended up thinking about this band Appalachia Rising, which is a beautiful folk band. And I was like, I really like that, that idea. And from Appalachia Rising, we sort of started to iterate on different Appalachia and another word. And that's how we got to another Appalachia. Um, and then for the subtitle, uh, I wanted it to, I wanted it to hold all the parts. Like I wanted, it, it's hard when you're writing something that's about intersectional identity. I think it, it can often feel like um, you lose that in the title. Um, and, and so I was trying really hard to think about a way to represent all parts of myself in the subtitle. And so coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place felt like a subtitle that held all the parts of me within it. I felt that too, reading it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, um, with my book, it, my original title was things people say, and I also got 
the same kind of thing where, you know, it's like, do you really want to center other people's words? Uh, and I realized I didn't. And that's where I came up with, this is one way to dance, but I didn't come up with a subtitle in time. My subtitle, if I had had one, would have been essays on race, place, and belonging. Mm. And I think that one, one thing that happened was that it, it wasn't clear, it's not clear necessarily from the cover what the book is about. Um, and so I started to look at books where I felt like there's something about the cover that conveys what it's about, but that still makes you want to, not even, I shouldn't say still, but makes you wanna read more. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's exactly what you said about intersectional identity. It's difficult to capture that on one page or with one image and, it's extremely hard. I think I think it's it's extremely hard, and I think it's actually kind of at its core. I think it's like one of the questions I feel like we have to confront in publishing is just like stories are going to be more and more intersectional, and so like how do we make sure that the way we represent stories can hold all of that? Because I just think that's not the expectation around stories a lot of the time. Still, the story the expectation is that like there's a single <laughs> single thread here or like a dominant theme that's going to get communicated through this and more and more I feel like stories are about a lot of different things and a lot of different facets of identity and it is hard to figure out how to represent that sometimes. It is really hard I had um, actually the person who helped me with my website said just by looking at the book she thought it was a novel um, that just that 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 image and someone else someone else thought it was a book about dance so I mean, you, we can't, you can't, um, you can't anticipate everybody's reactions, but I do think that, you know, it, it is, um, it's nuanced and really interesting. How do you, how do you communicate, you know, what your book is about in hopes of it finding its audience, however, you know, whatever you conceive that audience to be. Yeah, I think definitely. And, and yeah, and being able to have it communicate on some level, what the book is about is, is only helpful, just because I do think a lot of people go very quickly, like I'm either picking this up or I'm putting it down, so. Um. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So um, it's something that I've thought a lot about and that I just, that I just really appreciate about your book before I even opened it. So um, I, I, I have to say, as a reader, I just got a lot of pleasure looking at the cover and um, it felt as if it was thoughtful and funny. I mean, because I love those pictures of the 70s and 80s, right? <laughs> I have them too. I have them too. Yes. Um, so something else that I really loved about your book was its discussion in, I think I have two essays about Navratri, uh -huh. right? Nine Forms of the Goddess and is it in Be Like Wilt? No, it's on. An, it's in another one. Um, let's see if I can find it. Uh, well, it doesn't matter. Um, but I I loved this so much because it was such an important festival and holiday and celebration for me growing up. And I struggled to describe Navratri in my own book. And of course, you're working with the. You know, it's like Americans might know about Diwali and Holi and you know, the, both of those holidays meant almost nothing to me. They were not central to my experience of growing up in a very religious and Hindu family. And um, could you talk a little bit about what Navratri meant to you and it, that essay in particular? 
You yeah. did when we talked nine forms of the goddess was I think your favorite essay. It is my favorite essay because it's the essay in the collection I think that lets me do the most to honor like all of these women who played such a big role um, in raising me and ultimately in helping me figure out like who I am as a person, even though a lot of who I am as a person is the opposite of who they were. Um, I felt like I had this opportunity to sort of like really depict them on the page and, and pay, pay tribute to them. And I love that essay for that reason. I think similarly to you, for me, the most salient holiday for me, the moments when I felt most connected to my community and my culture were around Navratri, um, which is a nine day festival. It's nine days of dance. And we didn't do all nine days because we were in West Virginia and not India. In India, things shut down. It's the holidays. People do celebrate every night. We usually celebrated the two weekends. We did uh, that too in Rochester and Western New York. So it felt very, you know, my cousins who were in New Jersey or in California, like they had more people. Um, we didn't. So I, I thought that was, yeah, at the middle school gyms. Yes, 100%. I'd go to school there during the week and then I'd be back there again on Friday night and Saturday night for Navratri. Um, and we would dance for hours and hours and hours. That's what you did, is you danced. It was amazing. And it's the, it is those moments were 100% and continue to be the most connected moments for me. And they're also the moments I feel like when I saw my mom be the most free. Um, my mom would start the garba and she would end the garba. Oh, she, she, was, she was that auntie. She was that on Wow, wow. She started it and she shut it down. My dad uh, worked at a chemical plant and he had to get up really early and he just kept a very rigid sleep schedule. And like my mom would make a plan for how she was going to get home because this was also usually not very close to our house. But she would make a plan for how she was going to get home with somebody else who stayed late because my uh, dad was going to leave after everyone ate. He was out. Um, and she, this was like one of the moments where she really was asserting like her identity and her joy. And I think for me, seeing my mom in that way um, was really powerful, like seeing her free and seeing her sort of in the space that felt like home to her. I think I didn't get to see that all the time. And so there's just a way in which I think I associate that celebration with a kind of freedom of expression and embracing of identity that is just really beautiful. Um, and that I don't really feel like I've been able to recapture. Like I live in Boston. There are there is a significant Indian community. I have gone to those garbas in the suburbs, but what I've realized is like part of the power for me was knowing everyone in the circle. Like that that it wasn't dancing with random people. It was exactly, like yeah. it was dancing in community that was the most beautiful thing. And uh, you know, like I've done garbas like at the park by my house and I'll just invite like my random group of friends, which is very multiracial and like we'll do garba. And in some ways that has more meaning to me because again, like it's actually about the connectedness with people who you know and love. That's the most powerful thing about that. Um, and, and in Boston, like that for me, isn't an Indian community per se. It's a much different group of people, but I've sort of come to terms with the, the realization that it is, it's about that. It's about sharing that moment and that space and that community and that freedom with people who you care about um, and less about like the ritual of like, it's this celebration and we do it in this way and we do it in this place. I think I was trying to capture some of that in my book cover because it's, um, it's a skirt twirling and that's actually me twirling, but it was that with the feeling of being at a Garba or and, and Dandiras that, um, 
and I didn't know how to do it in words. And that's some of what I loved so much in your book is that I felt like you did actually capture that uh, and convey that and render it. Uh, and what you said about community, it's the same thing when I, when I, you know, if I've gone to Garba in New Jersey or anywhere else, it's just, it's not my, it, they're not my people. They're not the people I grew up with. It's not that one uncle who starts it. That's right, who does the counting of the dandia. Yeah. I don't know, he does that whistle thing. They uh -huh. can't do it, you know? <laughs> now I'm a talker uncle in my, in my community growing up. I can tell you who the uncle was. And I also know that I am the uncle when we do the dandia right. in the park, right? Because no right. one else knows what they're right. doing. Nobody else knows it. Right. And like, I think that was a realization I had to come to was like, oh, somebody's got to be the uncle. Like, it doesn't work if there isn't that person who's like, I'm the counter. I'm always the counter. I keep people in step. Like, those are funny realizations to have that like these things that were just parts of community that you took for granted, they don't keep happening if you don't do them. Like, absolutely. The, it yeah. falls apart. The dynamic becomes a mess if there's not a counter. Yeah, it's funny. My brother and I both married uh, South Indians, and, you know, I, we have to show them, right? Like, yeah, I mean, because first with the with the Danya, right, people will try to mirror you and it doesn't work. <laughs> you have to go to your opposite. <laughs> opposite sticks, right? And they don't get with Garba, you know, because you're going this way and that way and uh, all of it. All of it. All of it. I just loved it. Um, is there anything else that you would want to say about craft or form with that essay or or any of your other essays? I mean, I think what is interesting about that essay is it's it's very much a collage essay um, in that like each of the pieces stands as its own rendering of one of the women in my relationship to them. Um, but I did feel like this kind of interesting collision of both like collage as form and then also that this is like a celebration of Durga and she has nine incarnations and then thinking about the women in my life who align with those incarnations it let me play in ways that were really really interesting with um with like who was gonna who embodied each of these forms and there really were people who embodied all of them um and I initially wasn't gonna be in it um but then I was like, oh, there's a daughter of the mountains. Like, I have to be in this. I can't, like, I can't not be in it. And so that was an interesting experience too, to let the form and the content of the faith be the drivers of what ends up being written on the page, I think was just very freeing in a lot of ways. Did you go through a lot of drafts with that essay? Or did you, once you started, did you feel like you knew where it was going? Uh, I think in the first draft, it was very much the characters of sort of characterizing the women. And then I think in revision is where I was able to bring the through lines about gender um, and sort of like what I was learning about gender and gender expression into the piece. I think in its initial form, it really was all honoring, but not, it didn't have the reflection or the internal sort of introspection around, well, what does this mean about me? Or like, you know, why was I paying such close attention to these women? Like, why, why do I remember these things? And why have I noticed all of this and observed all of this and gathered all of this? That didn't come in the first draft. That definitely took time to find. Geetha Kotari is a, a really um, important mentor of mine. And she pushes me really hard on those 
ideas of like, you don't have to write about how you felt, but you do have to write about like, what were the stakes? Like, what were the costs for you here? Why, why is this important? Like, if you don't get there, it's pretty and it's interesting, but like, there's more that you have to get to. Uh, usually that more takes me a lot longer. Yeah, Gita is an important writer for me too. Um, and when I read that she was an important writer to you, I thought, oh, this is, it's kin. This is partly <laughs> we have, we share uh, a writer in common. Um, in fact, I, I spoke to her last week and we were talking about chemical bonds, which she said is one of her favorite essays. And it's an essay that I really admire for many reasons. Um, in part because of its complexity and how much you're able to bring into that essay. And I wonder if you could talk about that essay a little bit. That essay is probably the, uh, the hardest one, uh, was the hardest one for me to write. It's the one I feel like I, I, that and the Blue Red, Red Divide are the two essays in this collection where I like feel even still, like it's published, it's in the world, but I feel like I hold a lot of anxiety about those essays because it's so important to me that like, it's not about indicting anyone, um, that like, that's not the point. The point is to like, really look at why we make the choices we make and what the context is that allows us to make the choices we make or restricts us from making different choices. But I, I constantly am like questioning like whether I did a good enough job um, because those are people I really care about, right? Chemical Bonds is about my dad. Um, the Blue Red Divide is about the man who might as well be my grandfather. He's the only grandfather I've ever known. Like our relationships are complicated, but it's really important to me that I, that I hold both of them with a lot of love and a lot of understanding. And so I think um, Chemical Bonds is a tough, it's just a hard essay because it's about one of the hardest things that could have ever happened in our family. Um, for folks who haven't read it, um, my dad worked at Union Carbide Corporation, which was at one time, one of the largest chemical plants or chemical uh, companies in the world. And they had um, a plant in Bhopal, India, that in 1984 had a massive explosion and leaked many, many, many tons of methyl isocyanate into the air. And many people were killed, many people were burned, many people were blinded. Um, and my dad was working at Union Carbide and Institute West Virginia, which also had a production facility for methyl isocyanate. So he was sort of considered like the expert on the chemical and he was sent to India as part of the response team. He was the only person of color who was sent. He was the Desi man who was sent to represent the company in the country of his birth um, and was placed in a really difficult position of representing a company that had caused harm to his country of origin and to people in his country of origin. Um, and I always knew that, I mean, like my whole life, Bhopal has sort of been a big thing. Like, that. Yeah, and, and, and uh, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to no. say, I think for all of us growing up here of, of Indian background, I mean, I, it, you know, it was a disaster that brought India into the news and uh, our relatives and, um, you know, of a global traumatic scale. So to even say Bhopal now, uh, I mean, brings me back to 19, it was 1984, you said, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so to then to read your essay also, I mean, with this very personal connection was, you know, it just really moved it beyond, uh, well, I hate the term personal essay, but it was about your father and family. And when you're asked to represent a culture when you are the diversity in that company and what, 
as you said, I think when we were talking last week, just it, it brought up a lot of questions for me. Um, and not, you know, it wasn't answering questions, but those questions were really important. Yeah. And in a way, like when I started writing, I thought Bhopal was a story. And what I ultimately realized was like, and Geetha is who helped me realize is that Bhopal is not actually the story. The story is about how generational differences in experiences uh, with race and racism and with immigration impact the way we move in the world. Like that's what that story is about. It's about the fact that my dad's choices were constrained and limited and impacted by being a first generation immigrant, by being one of the only people of color in his chemical plant, by being one of very few people of color in the community. Like there was a lot of risk that he was carrying all the time. And ultimately, I think he bore a lot of responsibility for making sure that our family was taken care of. And that was what was driving his choices. And that I, living in a city as a daughter of immigrants, but not an immigrant myself, have a lot of different privileges that allow me to move and make different choices. And so while that essay is on some level about Bhopal, I actually think it's an essay where if you are the kid of immigrants, like there's a lot that I think all of us can see of ourselves in there in terms of like, how did our parents move and what choices were they making and how do we move and what choices do we make and why are those choices so different from each other? Um, you know, like it's easy to feel frustrated, um, but I think when I look at why my parents made the choices they made and I think about the context they were making them in, like it makes sense to me. They, it wasn't safe to make different choices necessarily. There was huge risk involved and I can take different risks myself because of the safety net that they built. Um, if I didn't have that safety net, I don't think I could take those same risks. And their lack of risk-taking basically engendered or enabled me to take a different kind of risk. Um, and so I think that's a lot of what I'm trying to work through in that essay is also what I've tried to work through in my brain in terms of understanding sort of why my parents made the decisions they made and why I make such different ones. Um, and in, in, in some ways, being able to own or acknowledge that like I can do what I can do because my dad did what he did. Um, and so that's what I try to get at. And I think you do get at it. There was a line in one of your essays about how your father needed a job. I mean, or had to take this job. I mean, just the basic thing. I mean, I think it was about why did, going to West Virginia. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. and it's right. I mean, in a way, most of my relatives are, they're all in California or New Jersey. And I think they were like, why don't you get out of, you know, Rochester, which is bordering the Rust Belt. Uh, and is economically somewhat economically depressed and you know you go where the job is that's right certainly especially at the time when I think probably your parents and my parents both were here like those options were really limited like if you were a physician from India or the Philippines coming to the United States in the 70s you were going to very rural places or very urban places because that is where the medical shortages were and those were places where people who were born and raised in the United States weren't choosing to work. And so you ended up in Queens, which is where my dad went first, or West Virginia or Mississippi or Tennessee, like Abraham Vergays. Like, if you know this history, you know, this is not just my dad. This is actually the pattern. There are pockets of Asian Americans in all kinds of places in this country that are unexpected by a dominant narrative, but that like we know exists because we know the story of why people ended up where they did. And it was yeah, largely because other people wouldn't go there. I think that dominant narrative has really bothered me because, you know, then it's just like model minority affluent 
uh, physicians, you know, at country clubs or whatever, and is not and, and uh, erases this other story, especially of um, those of our parents who were coming from working class um, and middle class backgrounds. And I, th I think that's just not represented. Um, something else I really loved about your book was its representation of class, yeah. you know, and specific ethnicity. Uh, you know, if you if you think about monsoon wedding or bend it like Beckham, you know, Punjabi culture and the Bengali Brahmins with, you know, Jhumpa Lahiri or Bharti Mukherjee and this was speaking to a different experience and I think it's really important. So thank you. Thank you for writing your book. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's pushing the, the single story away by having many stories. Yeah. And I think that's the goal, right? I definitely wouldn't say, I think this is like the definitive book about Appalachia. I don't think there is one. Um, and I don't think there's a definitive book about Gujarati culture. I don't think any there, I think my point would generally just be there's not a definitive book about any of this and what I would like is for there to be space for so many stories um, such that like they don't end up seeming like an anomaly but instead it's just like oh yeah lots of different people live in Appalachia and there are lots of different ways of being Gujarati and they're like you know like there are lots of ways of expressing your gender I would I would like for us to be in a place where this yeah the, it, it didn't surprise people to pick up the cover in a way they would just be like oh okay right um that is not the world we live in right now. So I think people are going to be surprised when they pick up the cover, but I think, I hope that we're, we're writing our way into a different world where the range of narratives that, uh, that is sort of present about a space, um, just make it so single stories can't stand. I love that. Do we have time for one more question or are we at time? Oh, you can ask one more question. Okay. That would be lovely. Let's do it. Nima, do you have any advice to other essayists? Because it is so challenging. I don't know why it's so challenging to publish an essay collection where, you know, I feel like we have shorter attention spans with the internet. And I think we're hungry for the truth, the truth of hearing the truth of someone's life. Um, but I do know in publishing, it's, it's difficult. So to any listeners who are interested in, in publishing or in making, even making a collection? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing I would say is that it's really important not to get caught up in like one vision for how you can see your essay collection coming into the world. Um, and so, you know, there's a traditional method of like querying agents and, and you can go down that road and I encourage support people in going down that road. But if what you start to hear down that road is that folks aren't interested, that doesn't mean that your collection doesn't matter and shouldn't exist. It means like, let yourself consider different options. Like let yourself consider small presses, let yourself consider university presses, let yourself consider spaces where there does seem to be a, a more open uh, orientation towards essay collections, towards diverse voices, towards complicating narratives. I have only good things to say about my university express, press experience. And when I look at places like University of Ohio, University of Kentucky, University of Georgia Press, like they're, what they're putting out tells you what they value. And in a lot of ways, they're showing us that they value complicating single narratives. So I feel like if you're somebody who's writing a collection that, that is trying to do some of that work, give yourself permission to explore those spaces and, and don't feel discouraged if, if sort of the 
traditional way of doing things doesn't work for you. Um, I think these stories are, are so important. And the most important thing is that they get into the world. And if they get into the world, they'll find their readers. That's what Keith always says to me. She says, your book is going to find its readers. And so let your, let your book be in the world so it can find its readers. Thank you so much, Nima. We're, I'm so glad your book is in the world. Dita's right. Well, thank you for talking with me. I really appreciate it. And thanks to the folks at Skylight for making this possible. Absolutely. And we are also very happy that this book is in the world. It has uh, the copies that we ordered and had on the shelf are gone. But no, <laughs> no need to fret for our listeners and our readers. We have ordered more and we will have more copies of another Appalachia in store soon. You can also order them on our website at skylightbooks.com. And again, for all of our listeners out there today, we were celebrating another Appalachia by Nima Avashia, and she is in conversation with Sejil Shah. Thank you both so much for being here and for taking the time to chat with us. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.